0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading in Luke six twenty-seven through 36 But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them also. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you?
1: Good morning, family of God. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus in our text are these words, but I say to you who hear. If you're here last week, you'll remember this is the middle of a famous sermon Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Plain. And There's a lot of people, a big crowd of people are here. But Jesus, we read last week, looked at his disciples. He looked at them with love. And he began to speak to them about what it means to follow him. About the nature of his disciples. And now this is kind of a pause moment in which Jesus says, But I say to you who hear. When Jesus talks about, You who hear, obviously he means more than physical hearing. He's not just talking about hearing with our ears, he's talking about hearing with our hearts. And that's very important because everything he's about to say in this section of scripture is a very sacred, powerful invitation to a whole new way of being in the world. It's an invitation to a lifestyle of love in which our hearts are open to the love of God being poured into us so that then that love can be poured out of us in a way that brings healing to the world. And the kind of love that Jesus is inviting us to will change us. To to hear the words that Jesus is speaking speaking right here, to really hear them with our hearts, is to be transformed. It's to be set free. So, as I was praying and thinking about this text all week, the burden on my heart, the prayer flowing from my heart is, Jesus, I want to be one of those who hears. Church, do you want to be one of those who hears Jesus with your heart? Let's just take a moment then to quiet our hearts, and I want to invite you where you are just to bow your head, and let's cry out to God. Do you believe the Holy Spirit hears and answers your prayers? You believe he wants to teach us this morning? Then let's ask him. And where you are, just pray for yourself and for those of us in here, that God would give us ears and hearts to hear his word today, and I'm going to pray for us. Our Father in heaven, I come to you confidently now, not based on who I am, but based on what Jesus has done for us. As we just celebrated the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus gave his life so that we could approach you with boldness and confidence and joy by grace. So I come to you and we as a people come to you in the name of Jesus, asking for the help of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear this word from our Lord. Give us hearts, Lord, to hear and be molded. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us as we've already prayed. And let this be a day of transformation, of renewal, of comfort, of repentance, of encouragement, of challenge. Revive us again, we pray, O Lord. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not have a relationship with you. That you've been knocking on the door of their heart and inviting them to Jesus. That today would be the day of salvation. Your Holy Spirit would give us all ears to hear and hearts to believe in our master, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, after Jesus says, but I say to you who hear the next word out of his mouth is this word love, which is our key word for today. Everybody say love. And this whole passage of scripture is an invitation to love. That's the title for my sermon today, an invitation to love. And if you wanted to sum up what Jesus is saying here about the practical daily outworking of the life of discipleship, you could sum it up just by saying, love each and every person. Love everybody. Love each and every person I send your way. He starts by saying not just love, but love your enemies in a way that makes it very clear that there are no exceptions to this invitation to love. And he goes on and elaborates that, makes it very clear. Even people who hate you, love them. Even people who need a lot from you and can never pay you back, love them. Even people who are suffering because of their own bad life choices, love them. By the way, can I get a testimony? Anybody ever been suffering because of your own bad choices and God still loved you? Thank the Lord. Jesus is clearly calling us to something which is very different than the way that the world tends to think and feel and speak and live. The world talks about love a lot. But I think it means what Jesus means. I think usually when we're talking about love or when we're singing about love in our songs and our culture, we're talking mostly about a powerful positive response to people or things that we find beautiful or good or helpful or pleasant. I see somebody and when I get around them, they're so kind. They make me feel special and cared for. And I just say, I just love them so much. Somebody's beautiful. Somebody treats us in ways that we really like. and we say, I love them, I love them. We talk about falling into love when we really, really like people and falling out of love when they hurt us. right? Or when we get bored with them. But really, that kind of love is about what can I get from this person? It's really a kind of interpersonal consumption, isn't it? What can I get from you? I'm responding positively. If I'm looking for a good friendship, it means I want a friend that's going to make me feel good. You hear what I'm saying here? But Jesus is talking about something very, very different. Because if love is a powerful, positive response to people that make us feel great or that we find beautiful or good or helpful... Or add a lot of value to our lives. Then it doesn't make much sense to say love your enemies. The kind of love Jesus is describing. Is an active force. That actually seeks to confront evil. And bring healing to the world. Thus in one sense. Love is a fighting word. And the way Jesus is using it. The love he's talking about isn't fighting against people, but it is precisely fighting for people. It's not fighting back by throwing punches, but it's fighting back with radical generosity and kindness and forgiveness and grace. This is something radically countercultural. It's different. My point here is that when we hear Jesus say, love God With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And we hear Christian discipleship being summed up over and over with this word love. We should not assume that we already know what the word love means. Even if we've been Christians for a long time, we need Jesus to teach us again what that word means, don't we? So today, I want to ask two pairs of questions. That's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. Just ask four questions in two pairs. And here's the first prayer of questions. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies... What does he mean by the word love? And related question, what does this look like in action in my daily life? We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but doers. When Jesus says, I say to you who hear, he's talking about not just listening with our ears, but listening in our hearts in a way that changes us from the inside out. So what does love mean to Jesus? And what does it look like in practice in our day-to-day life? And verses 27 through 34 are Jesus giving us a very robust answer to those questions. He doesn't leave us guessing. He speaks very clearly, doesn't he? What does it mean to love people day to day? What does Jesus mean by love? Well, verse 27 and 28 say it means do good to people. It means bless people. It means pray for people. This is an active force. Everybody say, do good. It means if I love you, I'm going to seek to benefit you. This is an active force in the world. I'm going to seek your well-being. I'm going to seek your flourishing. When it says bless people, that word blessing is an important word in the Bible. Everybody say blessing. When God blesses people, he's pouring out his power in a way that leads to their flourishing, their vitality, their life. Don't you want to be blessed by God, church family? When he blesses, it brings resurrection life. So it's saying interact with people, even those who hate you, even those who curse you, in such a way that helps them to thrive. To become fully flourishing human beings. Now, this doesn't just mean my heart's not involved. Doesn't just mean if I do something that helps somebody, I've loved somebody. Because this is calling for a deep heart investment that then flows out in action. Which is why in Corinthians 13, Paul says, hey, if I give all my, my money to poor people, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. It starts in the heart. Starts in the heart. A, a treasuring of other people as created and loved by God. That then leads me to actively seek their flourishing. So the questions that I love asks are questions like this. How can I help this person thrive? How can I help them be happy? And you can give, break it down in categories. How can I help them thrive physically? What, what practical thing could I do to help this person flourish financially? What could I do to help this person thrive relationally Because I value them so much as a human being. And if you don't know where to start, Jesus tells you, pray. Pray for them. When we pray for people, it does at least two things at once. One thing is that it really blesses them. By the way, I don't think our model for these is the imprecatory Psalms where David's blowing off some steam. I think our model is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we pray for God to bless people, he actually blesses people. He actually changes their lives and their circumstances. But the other thing is, as we're praying for God to bless people, he changes us. So if somebody's hurt me, I'll just tell you as a discipleship practice, I found if somebody's hurt me, I'm feeling a little frustrated, a little defensive, a little wounded. They may not even know they did it or maybe they do know that they did it. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there, right? I found if I just start praying. God, bless this person. I start praying, God, would you bless their finances? I start praying, God, would you give them good physical health? Lord, would you bless this person with mental and emotional health? Lord, would you bless this person spiritually that they could know you, to know your goodness? One thing that happens is God answers my prayer to bless that person. But the other thing that happens is my heart starts changing. I get free From being controlled. But so much of what Jesus is saying here is freeing us from being controlled by our wounds. And God starts giving me creativity to think about how I could actively actually do something that would help this person. Then he goes on. We're asking the question, what does Jesus mean by love? What does it look like in action? Verse 29 is very challenging. When people harm you, don't retaliate. That's a challenging word. When people harm you, don't retaliate. they hit you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. Lots of people have gotten mad at Jesus about this one. And I do think people have sometimes twisted what Jesus is saying here. I do not think this means that we should be passive in the face of injustice. Jesus was never passive in the face of injustice. But I do think it means that we confront injustice with truth and love. When Jesus stands before Pilate or the powerful religious leaders that condemned him and mistreated them, he confronted them with truth. He challenged them. He called them to repentance. But he loved them. It means, while I'm speaking truth to people who are harming me or harming others, I do not seek to harm them. I do not seek to humiliate them. I don't seek to defeat the other person. What I'm seeking is the opposite. I'm seeking the redemption of the other person. Which means my confrontation needs to come with a pathway to healing. And an open invitation. It means I don't hold a grudge against people. I don't demand recompense. Now if I've wronged somebody, I want to pay recompense. I want to pay restitution. But if they've wronged me, I don't demand it. Now the reason people have criticized Jesus about this is because... If you just think about this at the natural level, let's say we don't believe in God, okay? Let's not say that. We do believe in God. Amen, church? But if we just pretend for a second. If you just look at things from the natural way, it seems like this way of living would lead to bullies and oppressors running the world, doesn't it? Which is something that I I want you to get here. Jesus is calling us away to, to a way of life that does not make sense if the gospel is not true. If God is not real, these are probably not good ideas. If Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins and then rise again, this doesn't make sense. This, this way of living and loving is coming from a place that says, hey, we already know God is going to defeat all the evil in the world. We don't have to worry about oppressors and bullies ruling the world. God is going to judge evil. But Jesus says, you don't have to worry about that. But what you need to do is look with compassion And ask, how can I be a part of God's desire to redeem? The other thing we I notice is that as I read the history of the world, even just the the last hundred years, you start noticing people, who are the people who made the biggest difference in the face of grave evil? Who are the people who actually effectively did anything in the face of the Nazi Holocaust? In the face of the Jim Crow South. In the face of the great evils in the world. And do you know who they were? They were people who loved their enemies. Corrie ten Boom says some wild things about loving her Nazi persecutors. And yet God used her to redeem some of those persecutors. And to save the lives of the persecuted. Howard Thurman and Desmond Tutu and many of those who have effectively stood up against the evils of racism said, I don't have to like the way you're treating me, but I seek not your humiliation, but your redemption. And because of that, there was a power of God unleashed in their lives to restore and to renew. I think of the story of uh, a young man eventually become a congressman at the time. John Lewis was just a teenager, college student. And he was one of the Freedom Riders who rode the bus south of the Mason-Dixon line into the south um, because the federal government had changed segregation laws. So it was illegal to demand segregation in buses or in uh, the bathrooms and bus, uh, in, uh, bus stations. And they knew they were going to be persecuted. But they went to say, we need to bear witness to the truth. They were confronting evil and injustice. And John Lewis, when they passed that line, they got stopped at the first bus stop south of the Mason Dixon line he and his the white person he was sharing a seat with john lewis was a black man great faith in christ and they walked into that bus station and as they expected they were confronted by angry racist mobs that started beating them to a pulp some of the white people that were in that mob were faced especially vicious attacks and experienced permanent brain damage actually but john lewis was beaten to a pulp and uh, the police were standing there and watched it happen for a few minutes and they said, okay, that's enough boys and made them go on. And then as John Lewis was laying on the ground, bloody with teeth laying next to him and so on, the police officer says, alright, do you want to press charges on these boys? And John Lewis, he was about 20 I think at the time, said, no, we knew we were going to face violence when he came here. We want to make a statement about truth and righteousness. I don't want to press charges. And he got up and he used the restroom and he got back on the bus. Now, eventually, God used the profound witness of those freedom riders in powerful ways that led people who did not want to change their laws and policies to change them anyway. They confronted injustice. But many, many years later, John Lewis was not some obscure 20-year-old with big ideals. He was a congressman. And he got visited one day by a man he didn't know and didn't recognize who came to his congressional office and knocked on his door and sat down for a meeting with him. And said to him, you don't know me, but I remember you. And I was one of those guys who beat you in that bus stop. And he said, decades have passed and we all now see that what we did was evil. We all see it was wrong. And people like me who associated with that ideology have been blackballed. Their lives have been ruined. They've gotten divorces. They can't get a job. If you would have pressed charges against me, it would have ruined my life. But because you showed mercy... I've continued to thrive, and I just wanted to come here and say, you were right, and I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Now, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's a confrontation of evil that seeks not the defeat and the humiliation of one's enemies, but their redemption. And it doesn't get any easier as you go down the list. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. Every time I've ever preached on that, he says, that's not practical. And I'm like, I'm wrestling with it too, but Jesus said it. I'm not making this stuff up. Right? Give to everyone who asks from you. Listen, this this is a call to a radical default position of generosity. And I know you got all kinds of questions about, we live in a poor community and there's always people all the time. And what do I do with somebody on the street corner? And I I really, that's those are good, challenging, specific, particular questions. But I need us to hear the heart of what Jesus is saying. If you're my disciple, your attitude is an attitude where your default position is radical generosity. Just give and give and give. Wherever you see need. You see kids struggling in a school system that's suffering hard? Give. You see people that don't get good health care in your community and it's really taking a toll on their lives? Give. You, people, you see people suffering because they're oppressed? Give. You see people suffering because they've made a lot of bad choices. Give. Give to everyone. We're not trying to sort out the worthy from the unworthy. It's a radical disposition. Why don't we want to do this? We don't want to do it because we fear what will happen to us if we live this way. Which is another occasion to say, what Jesus is calling us to doesn't make any sense if God isn't real. We won't live this way unless we trust there's a Father who gives to us every time we ask. So Jesus is saying, give. That's what love looks like. 31, treat other people how you want them to treat you. That's the golden rule. Here's an amazing thing about that verse 31. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That golden rule is stated not just by Jesus, but by many teachers. Jewish teachers, Confucian teachers, Greek philosophers, lots of cultures, lots of people said this before Jesus. But what's amazing is if you go read those people, they'll say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But then they'll also say, love your friends and hate your enemies. They'll also say things like, give to people who can give back to you. Relationships of mutuality. Don't give to people who can never pay you back. Which sounds like a lot of the uh, advice we get in our culture. Cut off all toxic relationships. If they're not giving back to you, you need to not give to them. Don't give to one-sided relationships. Jesus doesn't know about any of that, does he? Jesus is calling us to a radically different way of being. But here, when he says the golden rule, he says, okay, the golden rule is my way of summarizing what I just said to you, which goes totally contradictory to what the world had told you the golden rule meant. But Jesus is forcing us to think about our logics. So a lot of times we demand, treat me like I deserve. But that's because we, we're not very self-reflective in those moments. All I want is what I deserve. When I think about it a little bit longer, do you know what I want? I want to be treated a lot better than I deserve. I want my wife to be really nice to me, even when I'm a jerk. Don't you? I want people and God to pursue, to cherish me and to pursue my flourishing, even when I behave badly. Anybody else? I need to hear some amens. Y'all want what you want, deserve from God? No. Treat me better than I deserve. Treat me better than I deserve. Jesus is saying, each of us longs for this. You long to be cherished. as You've failed. You've sinned. And God still cherished you and valued you and sought your good. So just treat people like that. Verses 32 through 33, he says, go out of your way to do good to people who cannot reciprocate. I'm just paraphrasing here. When you give, give to people who can't pay you back. And then in verses 34 and 35, when you lend, when you loan money, when you give to people, loan expecting never to get paid back. A lot of it's summed up in verse 36. Be merciful. Everybody say merciful. We're asking the question, what does love look like in action? Do good. Bless. Pray. Treat people better than they deserve. Cherish people and pursue their flourishing no matter what the cost. Be generous to people, even if they don't deserve it or have any claim on your life. And here he says, be merciful. If you just search that word mercy or merciful in the Bible, what you'll find is that usually it's talking about God being merciful. And the context is usually people are in big trouble and it's usually their fault. And God gets down into their trouble with them, into their mess with them and rescues them, even though they deserved it. And he's just saying, treat people like God has treated you. This is a very radical way of life. Now, I've been trying to answer the question, what does Jesus mean by love? And what does it look like practically in our day to day life? Now, here's the second pair of questions. First question, some of you may be thinking this right now. Why would anybody want to live this way? Some people may be thinking that right now. Related question. And even if I decide that I do want to live this way, how in the world am I going to muster the moral and spiritual strength to do it? Some of us in here are thinking, this sounds great, but I don't know if I can do it. Let's think about those questions. Here's the first thing that I would say before I say anything else. If we're asking the question, why would I want to live this way? Let me tell you something that anybody who's ever successfully managed to live this way for five minutes that's learned this is the path of freedom peace and joy most of us haven't managed to live a whole month like this in a row right but if you manage to live a day or 20 minutes like this where you release all of your hate you say i will not be determined by my wounds i'm determined by god's love and rather than sorting out all the rights and wrongs of the universe i'm just going to choose to cherish everybody and seek how to bless everybody sometimes we make a resolution to live that way And we we try to make it as long as we can, right? (laughs) But when we release all of that hatred and just say, I want to dwell in the love of God and love people, what we experience is freedom, peace and joy. But if we want to think more about this, we need to look again at verse 35 and 36. These are very powerful verses. At the beginning of verse 35, Jesus kind of summarizes what he's been saying. But says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I see three principles in those two verses, which I'm going to say before I finish. I'm just going to tell you the three principles now, and then I'll reflect on them for a moment. First principle, Christian love is a response to God's initiating love for us. Christian love is a response to God's initiating love for us. Second, Christian love is an expression of the new identity God has already given us by grace. Christian love is an expression of the new identity God has already given us by grace. And third, Christian love is sustained by hope and future grace. Let's reflect on those for a second. Christian love is a response to God's initiating love for us. Here's the glorious good news of the gospel. Everything that Jesus has just said, the radical love to which he's called us, is exactly how God has loved us in Jesus Christ. And it's exactly how God is loving us today and how God is committed to steadfastly loving us all the way to heaven. What do I mean? When we were God's enemies, not that he viewed us as enemies, but we viewed him in that way. We were living as God's enemies, living in sin. God loved us enough to come to earth and take on our weakness and die on the cross for our sins and rise again. When we curse God, he blesses us. When we hate God, He does good for us. When we cry out and ask God for help, He gives to us over and over again. Often He gives to us so much, even when we haven't thought to ask Him yet, and usually when we don't deserve it. He lends to us and gives to us all the time. We can never pay Him back, nor does He need us to. When we strike Him and spit on Him and curse Him and criticize Him, He turns the other cheek and just keeps loving us. All this is exactly the way that God loves us. He sustains our lives by grace, even when we are a total mess. And he is merciful to us every day. Anybody want to testify? Has God been merciful to you this week? He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. The dynamic of the Christian life is like this. First, our souls get filled with God's love, and then we gain the capacity to pour out the same love into the lives of other people. Most people do not love the way Jesus is talking about for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it's humanly impossible. It's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we could describe this psychologically. Most of us are walking around on empty which means we're we're going into relationships with people trying to get filled up. I need a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend to fill me up. I need friends to fill me up. Maybe I look at my spiritual family community to fill me up. I want my job and my coworkers to fill me up. I would like for my neighbors to fill me up. And so that's why we look for people that we find encouraging or helpful or attractive and add value to our lives. And we grab onto them and we say, I love you because we do really enjoy being around them because they fill us up. But there's several problems with this. First of all, how long does it last? Does it fill you up all the way and forever? No. And then when that spouse or that girlfriend or that friend fails to fill you up the way you want it to, guess who you don't like anymore? <laughs> guess who you're mad at? And have you found that when other people say they love you because of how much you add to their life. Then when you hurt them, what happens? Have you successfully filled anybody up ever? So we're all walking around empty. Trying to grab onto people to fill us up. The only way to love this way is if we're relating to a people from a place of fullness. And the only place you get that fullness is Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to us. He pours out his life for us. And then there's this cycle. Sometimes we think I'm too tired to serve other people. I'm too tired to love other people. Jesus, there's two things we need to do. One is put our face on Jesus. And then two, we start experiencing this paradox of the Christian life. The more I pour out to others, the more I get filled up with God's love. The more I refresh others, the more I'm refreshed. It's more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. The more I hold back the more I'm blocking myself from being able to receive that love. It's a beautiful cycle of self-giving. You can sum it up with two scriptures from Romans 5. Romans 5.8, 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. And then Romans 5.5, 5, a few verses before that says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We receive from God and then we pour into others. Christian love is a response to God's initiating love for us. Second statement we made is, Christian love is an expression of the n- new identity God has already given us by grace. As beloved children, we are free to love. I love the song that we were singing a second ago. It's who you are, it's who I am. We start with knowing who God is. Everybody say, God is love. And Ephesians 5, one says that as beloved children, we're called to imitate God. So everybody say, I am loved. As we look at Jesus on the cross, we see both of those truths. If you're not a Christian, here's what it means to be a Christian. You look at Jesus on the cross and say, I've sinned, I've rebelled, but that's my Lord. Jesus saved me. And the more you look at him, the more you see God is love and I am loved. And then it's like father, like daughter, like father, like son. God, our father, is merciful. So I want to be merciful. I'm learning to walk out this identity. He's generous and gracious. So I want to be generous and gracious. And finally, Christian love is sustained by hope and future grace. I love this statement. Jesus makes your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. Pointing to the future is about hope. Everybody say hope. And this does not mean I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God likes me. So I got to try and do enough good things. For people that he'll take me into heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is talking to disciples whom he has already encountered and grabbed hold of in the midst of their sin and brokenness and called them to himself. He's giving his life for them. He's going to die on the cross for them and rise again. He already loves them. And what he's saying, as you follow me on this path of self-giving love, that love is sometimes going to be very costly. To love people the way we we're talking about is going to be costly. But Jesus is saying... Even when love is costly today, you can know Jesus has good things prepared for you tomorrow. He has life abundant for you in this life and especially in the coming kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. Even when loving today feels like being crucified, sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, we know that cross leads to resurrection. And our love is sustained by the promises Of Jesus, that those who weep now will laugh later. Friends, as I prayed about this week, I thought, I don't want to try and get super philosophical. I don't want to create a bunch of illustrations. What Jesus is saying is very simple, isn't it? What we need is not for me to stand up here and say something smart, but what we need is the Holy Spirit to help us hear the word. So here's what I would like to do. In a moment, we're going to, Respond through worship, but I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart that we should have a little extended time to pray today So i've invited genesis if she would come up and strum for a second And I just want to take an extended few moments to pray before we sing Here's some things on my heart church. Do we need a greater outpouring of god's love in our hearts? This is my prayer. God help me to know that perfect love that casts out fear Help me to know that perfect love that makes us bold And I suspect, probably, as we're meditating on this passage, that, like me, probably, the Holy Spirit is touching your heart in some places where you feel Him inviting you to greater love, right? The word for that is repentance, and that's not a scary word. If you're a Christian, repentance is fun. I don't mean to make light of that. Sometimes it can be painful in the process, but it's an invitation to more joy. So this is a moment where I want to pray, God, pour out your love into our hearts. God, I want to repent for my lovelessness. I want to love people more like you do. And I want to pray for more of God's love poured out in our community. Does our world need to know this love, church? So I want to pray.